Welcome to the Work Revolution podcast, where we believe, in fact, we know, there's a better way to work and live. And we are here to challenge the status quo of obsolete workplace practices and ideas about leadership. I'm Lisa. And I'm Deborah. Along with you, our listeners, we're evolving our thinking about what it means to belong, innovate, and create change at work. Join us as we dispel the myths of meritocracy, hierarchy, and other bullshit practices that get in the way of all of us harnessing our full potential to make a better world. Hello and welcome back to our listeners for our predictions episode. We did one of these last year and now we are looking ahead to this new year that we've just started 2023. Happy New Year, Lisa. Happy New Year, Deborah. A new year. My goodness. New year, new me. Yeah, I was actually joking with a friend of mine. Well, joking. We were reminiscing about Y2K, which is now 23 years ago, which came as a shock to both of us. Yes, time has marched on. Whether the working world has, I'm not as convinced, but we'll offer our predictions of where we think things will be going, given where we've come from in the last few pandemic years. Right. You bet. Yeah. Time waits for no one yet. I mentioned going into this episode that I reviewed what we talked about last year just to remind myself. And we're talking about some of the same things still. I mean, the tone of it's changed a little bit. Some of the urgency around some things has changed a little bit, but a lot of it's the same. Yeah. And I thought I might start us off just talking about the overall climate before we step into workplaces and what's happening and what we predict will continue to happen or will start happening. So we don't have to think too deeply when we think about the sense that we many of us have right now about the world. There's some major geopolitical turbulence, some issues are happening in economies around the world. There's Putin's attack on the Ukraine. There's dysfunction as we speak in the U.S. political sphere. COVID is now raging in China. Tech companies, places that were pretty solid opportunities for employment are now laying people off. I read today that Amazon is letting go of 18,000 people. Crypto seems to be tanking. And we're living with the aftershocks of the pandemic. There's issues around inflation, global supply chains, and we can't do a podcast without mentioning the ongoing environmental devastation that is impacting our planet, but also everyone on it. So given this overall climate, work is a big piece of how people spend their time in this world with all these different things going on. And so you and I have done quite a bit of reading on what some of the big box consultants and the prognosticators and pundits are talking about for 2023. Given all that, what are some of the things that you're reading and hearing about and even talking about in your work? I'll kick it off with an extension of what you just talked about in terms of the environment. And the theme that comes up for me there is how much change is happening, has been happening over the last couple of years. And what we also know about change and what you and I have learned a lot more about over the last couple of years is how change resistant our brains are. And so when we talk about change resistance, traditionally, that's sort of been something that's been looked at as though like employees are change resistant, but somehow leaders are visionaries and they've got it all figured out. But I would argue, well, we're all the same. We're all from the same human species and leaders are showing some change resistance too. And so I think there's so much push for workplaces to change, adjust to these pressures like you've talked about. 
And it relates directly to what I propose as one of the first major trends that I'm reading a lot about, which is workplace mental health and well-being. All of those factors that you just talked about are really making it challenging for people to just navigate their lives. I'm seeing a breakdown even in my community where I live. I'm seeing more people are definitely in crisis. I mean, one quick example would be, and you've probably read about this too, you and I aren't in the same city, but I know how up to date you are on news and current events and so forth. One that come to mind is the TTC, which is the Toronto transit system here in Toronto. We have a very large transit system here. The amount of violence on the TTC has significantly increased. I'm talking about broad daylight in rush hour, people being pushed in front of trains or stabbed on a train. Not really related to the workplace per se, but it's just an indication that people are not doing that well. And so there's real pressure in the workplace now and on leaders to address these concerns. And in fact, the one other thing I'll mention about that, which I think was, I thought was really interesting, is that the US Surgeon General, for the first time ever, released what they're calling a framework for workplace mental health and well-being, where they have actually laid out this framework and they've based it on human needs. Human needs, for example, safety. But some of the needs that were interesting that they addressed there, which we don't often think about, we think about the most basic needs, but things like autonomy, for example. Autonomy relates to flexibility, which is something that we're going to talk a little bit about. So. I think this is a conversation that is being had in many organizations, will continue to be had in many organizations, and is going to really be a challenge. And I think part of the challenge is to not be so judgmental about people because we can't keep calling younger generations snowflakes and they're weak and they don't know how to handle stress. I've heard all of these comments being made. Well, it's no wonder people are struggling when we talk about all these things that are happening around us, like you just mentioned. So I think we really need to have a lot more compassion and empathy and just think about how we are going to be supportive of people who are struggling in that area. And also then well-being, we want to thrive. We don't want to just put band-aids on wounds, so to speak. We want to actually have people thrive because there's so much evidence that thriving employees and happy employees actually are more productive and do better work. And so that's where ultimately going. And that's where the organizations that I think will be really competitive are going to head. How about you? Any thoughts on that? Yeah, I think well-being, wellness, the focus on mental health. I mean, people feel unsettled in this unsettled world. And to me, that's a perfectly valid and appropriate reaction to everything we're living with. I mean, people with full-time jobs who are unsure if they can continue to pay the rent or pay for heat. I mean, we see a lot of this in the UK with the energy crisis in Europe. There's just a lot of uncertainty. I mean, we've talked in previous episodes of David Rock and the scarf model. If we set status aside for a second, the C in scarf is certainty. There's so much uncertainty that our brains are being multiple hamsters on multiple wheels just to get through the day, just to make sure that all our needs are taken care of or the needs of our families are taken care of. And to have also the sort of the sword of Damocles hanging over us of maybe I'm going to lose my job or what if I'm forced to back to the office given my employer is highly resistant to creating opportunities for me to continue to be productive while working remotely? A lot of these things are tied together, but I do want to touch on this wellness piece to start off with, because you and I are familiar with employers having employee assistance programs. And this is sort of farming out to these organizations that 
They can provide counseling. They can provide support to people, whether it's re, not re-emerging, but coming back to the workplace after either a mental health or a physical health issue. I don't think that have like sending people to these programs or offering these programs is enough because workplaces are where much of our mental health problems are stemming from. Like leaders actually have to start creating, and we've been saying this for I think the whole year, environments that are not injuring people and injuring their mental health and providing unrealistic levels of stress and workload. We can figure this out. We know how to figure this out. And I think this keeps being one of my biggest hopes around work and around workplaces is that I think of that the beginning of the $6 million man. Of course, I'm a child of the 70s. Like, we have the technology. We can (laughs) rebuild him. Well, it's the same thing about the workplaces. We know what the brain needs in order to feel safe and happy and to contribute. Let's just start doing it. And when you talked a little bit earlier about the resistance that leaders feel, I can't tell you how many times and in how many organizations I've been part of a so-called transformation team where all the people who are supposed to be doing the changing and transforming are in the level below the C-suite or the director level. It's the people at the front line who are basically told to get with the program. And that's just another stress when you're seeing the people above you not doing anything to create the conditions for success and being told what you're supposed to do or not do. Like, I'm hoping that that continues to die a slow death. I mean, as you and I know, people are voting with their feet. Just to touch on flexibility, and I know we'll go there in a second, but half of employees say their decision to stay in a job depends on their ability to have flex around their location, their hours of work. And a lot of the flexibility is really so that they can protect their mental health. So I'm with you. I think for 2023, well-being, wellness, focus on mental health is going to be critical for the workplace and for employers to pay some serious attention to. So let's go into that next one, which is hybrid or remote work or just flexibility at work. And this really relates to this basic need that humans, turns out we have for autonomy and for some control over our day. And you and I have talked about this before as well, but the workplace just isn't really designed for modern day working lives. And it's sort of designed for someone who has a 1950s style housewife at home. And wouldn't that be fantastic? But in terms of modern day living where people need to actually take care of all their own needs, clean up after themselves, make their own food, take care of elderly parents, take care of children, lots of people with caring responsibilities on top of taking care of your own stuff. So there just remains this tension around offering the flexibility. And I've talked to a number of people recently who are working in especially the larger organizations. I'm seeing this more so in large companies that they're really trying to enforce. And I will use the word enforce. They're not trying to inspire it so much. They're trying to enforce three days a week in the office. And there's still resistance. They're not having a lot of success doing it necessarily. And so it's hard to say where exactly this is going to go. The more cynical side of me thinks that these employers and the decision makers in these organizations are sort of waiting and secretly hoping for a recession that will give them power back so that they can start making more demands. This is not an evolution of the way we work. This to me would be incredibly disappointing. Obviously, I hope that's not the way it goes. 
The other thing to remember is that every people are different. And another basic need that we have is social. We're social beings and a sense of belonging. Yes, we can't ignore that. So how do we meet these needs in the future of work if we are also going to lean into this flexibility piece? And that to me just means reimagining and being a little bit more creative about how and why we gather people, because we do still need to do that. We still do want to have people developing connection and rapport and relationships and having a sense of belonging and yes, collaborating and getting to know each other. We have the newer generation entering the workforce now that has never worked in a space where they've had to go to work every day. And we'll start to now move through the ranks in an organization We have people who have started new jobs and never, in some cases, have seen their coworkers in person. And so I think it's just really looking at a blended approach and being more creative and open to how we're addressing these things. And I think it can, I absolutely am totally confident that it can be done. We just have to be open to rethinking it. Yeah. And we call our podcast The Work Revolution. I feel like I'm becoming increasingly revolutionary in my thinking on these things, partly because like you just you mentioning, you have to be at the office three days a week. So are you paying for me to sit, put my ass in a chair in an office? Or are you paying me to actually contribute my skills, my knowledge, my experience to advancing the mission and the vision of this organization? Oh, you want both. Well, then why do I have to do it in the office? Like I'm happier at home. I'm more comfortable at home. And this whole thing, we're hearing senior leaders say things like, oh, it's about the culture. We want people back in the office for the culture. Well, people need emotional connections. As you say, people do need a sense of belonging, but they don't need to physically be in an office in order to have that. I mean, just look at all of us, how we've gotten through the pandemic. We've managed, I'm not saying that Zoom is ideal. I'm not saying that hours and hours of video conferencing is where we want work to be, but we can create human connection without having to put on our nylon stockings and pay money to public transit in order to sit in a place where it was highly distracting. I mean, you said something to me earlier before we started recording, and I thought this is so true, which is, yeah, come back to the office. If you're a leader, you've got a door you can close. You're probably in meetings most of the day, just talking. Like, are you contributing or making anything happen? And by the way, I'm not dissing the vast majority of leaders who do make stuff happen. But for people who are just trying to sit at their computers and do stuff, they don't need to be in the office. And frankly, any experience I've personally had of being open concept, I'm probably 50% less effective than I would be if I could just close the door or have some space on my own. So this whole idea of culture is really not a place, but it's the environment and how you treat people, like the psychosocial environment, not the physical environment, and how people are treated. So organizations that get this right and create ways of people having a sense of belonging and connection to the organization, and that kind of tips me over into one of the other things I think we're going to see increasingly is the sense of people desiring purpose and meaning out of their organizations. And I don't just mean, okay, let's say I work for, I don't know, a company that makes ball bearings or surgical masks or whatever. I mean, you might not feel this huge sense of connection to the product, but you might feel a sense of connection to an organization that, for instance, contributes to environmental causes. Or if employees are identifying that their families around their vacation policies or those kinds of things. So organizations that pay attention, I think, to what employees want and need to thrive are going to be, I think, 
to have better places to work in 2023. Yeah, that goes back to what I would call values alignment. Whereas I think a lot of what we're seeing around meaning and purpose is people really discovering what's important to them, what they value, and wanting to live in accordance with that, because that's part of our evolution as a human being is to, okay, our basic needs are met. Where do we go from here? We start getting to know ourselves better. We start wanting to really utilize our skills and strengths in a meaningful way, contribute in a meaningful way. And we want to live in accordance with our values. So when there's a values conflict at work, that contributes to some of these more negative side effects that we see when we talk about some of the health implications and so forth. And in career coaching, I saw that so many times where people were like, oh, I worked for 30 years in the bank. Did you like it? Well, not really. Oh, and by the way, I have carpal tunnel syndrome and sleep apnea, and I'm on anxiety medication. And I can't say with 100% certainty that I'm not a medical doctor or anything. I can't say these things are connected, but I believe that they are connected just based on the many, many experiences and many, many conversations I've had over the years. Related to what you just said, though, I want to take it to the next step, which is connected to productivity, but also leadership and how leaders are, whether they accountable to, accountability is the word I've been using a lot more lately because we want to be accountable for results, but also accountable for the impact that we have. And I really want to see more leaders held more accountable for their impact. And that includes behaviors the way they treat people. I've come across a couple situations this past year with leaders who are considered untouchable for some reason. Well, they're considered really smart. They get certain results, but they also create carnage around them. And traditionally, people like that have been protected. And I think that we're going to start seeing less and less of that because of this we talked about, about mental health and so forth, where leaders will be more accountable for the impact they have in terms of people around them. Somewhat related to that, I'll try to segue it anyways, whether it's a good fit or not, but productivity. So you mentioned this, how are we measuring productivity? Is it time spent in a chair or logged in front of a computer, even though maybe I'm online shopping or whatever while I'm sitting in front of my computer? So I think thinking about productivity in new ways and having actual good ways of measuring productivity will be something that we see leaders focusing on more so. And thinking about productivity is a design problem. It is not about forcing people into a certain way of working or crunching them to spend extra time and texting them on the weekends and so forth. And in fact, there is mounting research to suggest working less time may equal more productivity which relates to the research coming out of four-day week global. We had an interview earlier this year with Andrew Barnes, who's one of the leaders in that organization, about the pilot programs that they're running all around the world and all of the evidence that they are now accumulating that shows that you can actually see a significant increase in productivity by actually having people work fewer hours. Anything on that, Lisa? Well, I'm just looking at this report that I was reading by Future Forum. The evidence is pretty clear that people are more productive when they're not distracted by all the stuff going on at the office. And by the way, we're not even talking about organizational politics here. 
that can be highly distracting when you're in the workplace and somebody leaves a meeting crying and all that stuff. Like now we don't get to see that, which frankly, I think is a bonus. Although it does also have me ask questions about is bullying on the increase when there's no other people around. So there's there's some touchy ground there. But you're reminding me of one of the leaders I'm coaching who's a director level in a kind of a mid-sized company. And the person that they report to is in the C-suite. And the leader basically is highly transactional and demands results. So it's all, can we measure it? Are the numbers? Are we selling? Et cetera. And the people who report to this director, they want empathy. They want support. They want to be developed. They want to be heard and listened to and treated like human beings. And so this particular director and I, we were talking earlier today about the real pressure as a leader to manage that sort of interstitial space between an organization trying to grow and meet its profit objectives and employees who are not willing to put up with the bullshit of changing priorities all the time. And this leader, the thing we talked about specifically was that their engagement scores were had been lower this year than they had been through the pandemic. And by the way, they haven't lost any employees. These employees are loyal to their leader. And the engagement scores went down primarily because the employees were saying, well, have a sense of that you're not setting clear priorities for us. Well, again, this leader's caught in the middle. He's not getting clear priorities from above. And you touched on this at the beginning, and it relates a bit to wellness. But there are many middle leaders who are really struggling. They've been keeping their teams together through the pandemic. They've been the people who have been there emotionally for their teams. They've had excessive workloads often. I mean, I talk to people who are in meetings from eight in the morning until six o'clock at night. This is unreasonable. It's stupid. How do you expect people to be productive and contribute to your organization if you're putting them into these situations? They're not humane, frankly. Like, Didn't we have an industrial revolution that afterwards brought unions in to prevent this kind of thing? And so the last point I'll make about this is that leaders in organizations, their scores for well-being are dropping. Their scores for productivity are dropping as well because they are feeling a lot of stress or feeling a lot of anxiety. And we would love people to be better and stronger leaders, but we don't develop the kinds of leaders that our organizations need. We continue to send people to one size fits all. Here's how you have a performance conversation. Here's how to think strategically. And the workplace doesn't need that from leaders anymore. The workplace needs something profoundly different. And I was just reading earlier this morning about this middle manager crunch and and burnout amongst middle managers is pretty significant. And in fact, one of the articles that was one of their major trend predictions was this is an area that needs to be addressed. I think that's absolutely spot on. I think there's a great deal of tension for people who are in those roles, which will segue into another prediction, and that's around the trend of coaching. You and I are experiencing this, of course, never been a better time to be a coach in some ways. And even the uprising, so to speak, of coaching organizations, Coach Hub, Better Up, Ezra, There are a few that are in Europe and spreading into North America. Many of these are organizations that didn't exist a few years ago, and they have grown very rapidly. So one of the things I'm noticing, and I'll call it a prediction, is that, well, first of all, just the democratization of coaching, offering up coaching to more people at a variety of levels, so not just something that's exclusive to the C-suite anymore. And I think is probably one of the best ways to address another trend that I've read a lot about, and that is the focus on soft skill development. And so 
I'd love to hear your view on this, Lisa, but it seems to me that coaching is probably one of the best ways to help people to develop in terms of their sense of self and develop some of those soft skills. We can train people on techniques and we can interject maybe bits of inspiration, but really working with people where they are at and providing that mirror and reflection and time out in a way to focus on self and development, I think is just so valuable for people. And so this is something I'm happy to see that is increasing and that organizations are providing more so for employees. And I hope that this continues. And I think it's also competing for training. Organizations that are looking at coaching as an option, I think that they're dipping into their training budgets for that most likely. So some decisions being made, do we invest in training or do we invest in coaching? Yeah. And one of my mantras since I've been working as a coach and in organizational development is training does not equal performance. Training does not equal culture. Training is training. Training is you are an empty vessel, Deborah, and I will fill you with a font of knowledge and thou shalt go forth and employ the skills and knowledge that I have imparted on you. How often does this work? Mm. Not really a lot. If you're teaching someone to drive, yeah. If you're teaching somebody to have difficult conversations in a highly politicized work environment, you can't train that. You have to help people step into courage. You have to help people manage their own saboteurs, their people please. Like this is stuff that coaching really can support. When you said that democratization of coaching, what I thought, I play hockey. I love hockey, although I'm yet again disappointed at the Montreal Canadiens this season. However, A team does not just coach their goal scorers. Like organizations typically will only coach their top tier, their high performers. A hockey team will coach everybody. They'll coach defense. They'll coach the goaltenders. They'll coach interplay between the front lines and the back lines. Like you're coaching everybody. And so what I love about this democratization of coaching is it's like we value everybody's growth. We want everybody to succeed. So I love that this is sort of these doors have been opened. But where I see problems, because I do some work for one of these coaching organizations, is that many organizations are now not developing their leaders to become coaches. They're just outsourcing to people like me. And so I am often a surrogate leader to people who come to me for coaching because they're not getting what they need from the leaders above them. And I find a lot of the coaching I do is helping people manage the ineffective people that they report to. And so for years, organizations are saying we need to invest in our leaders. Well, if we keep expecting most leaders to be focused on productivity gains and results and not on creating good cultures and environments for people to thrive and to bring their skills and expertise... I mean, yes, good for you and I that we can support people and give them something they're getting in the workplace, but this does not solve the fundamental problem of poor leadership in workplaces. I think the other thing that I would say about coaching, and I don't have a strong view as to whether somebody's certified as a coach or not, but a lot of things are passing off for coaching that are not coaching. And giving advice, for instance, this is what you should do. Or people who don't have good ethical boundaries where they're sort of in cahoots with, say you're coaching somebody as an external and you're kind of in cahoots with the person's leader without revealing it to the employee. Like there's some of this kind of stuff going on. So as you and I know, coaching is not a regulated profession that we're psychology or social work or other things. So I don't know that it needs to go that way personally. I think many people can be effective coaches. 
But I do think that organizations need to be very careful about who they hire into roles as coaches for their employees, because you might not be getting what you think you're getting. And I'll just add one other thing to this, which those of you who are employers, I also want you to know that many of the people that I coach don't want to work for you. And even though I'm hired to help them be better leaders in your organization, it's almost inevitable that at least half of the people I coach are trying to figure out how to either tolerate better the organization that they're in or to find a better place to work. So employers beware, your employees might not be getting the coaching to contribute to your organization, but might be using the time with me or with other coaches to figure out where they'll be happier. That is such a good point. (laughs) It's so true. Oh, yes. The number of times we have conversations with people and it's really about how can I arm myself to tolerate this or how can I prepare to get the heck out of here? It's why we do this work. It's what's prompted me to go this route and to share insights, (laughs) hopefully with people who will listen. The last thing on my list, and it's something I can talk all that knowledgeably about, but I'll just make a mention of it. And that's a bit of a push, an upward trend in terms of compensation and benefits and employees being in a better position to negotiate these things for themselves. Part of that is a real push, which is actually in some places becoming legislated. I legislated. Guess, best, yeah. yeah. But that's around pay transparency. So this is a trend that we're seeing. I think this is a good thing. This will go a long way in terms of equity, equality, getting rid of pay gaps and pay discrepancies. It's also an important part of organizational retention strategies at the moment. This could change depending on what happens with the economy. But generally speaking, I think that we are seeing a trend in compensation and benefits where employers are starting to feel like... Now, part of this, I think, is throwing money at a problem instead of being a little bit more creative in terms of workplace culture solutions that could be implemented And instead, just, well, if we pay people enough, they'll come to work and hopefully ignore all those other issues. So I don't know that it's effective long-term strategy. But at the same time, I think it's probably time because generally speaking, in most places, salaries have not necessarily kept up with cost of living and inflation and so forth. So it was probably a change that needed to happen. Do you have anything to add to that one? Yes, but in a very tangential way. When you talked about pay transparency, to me, this is very much linked to equity in the workplace because I don't know how often we hear these stories or we've experienced them ourselves where there's either a man and a woman doing a similar or exactly the same job and there's a discrepancy in the pay and guess who's getting paid less to do the same work. We hear this for people of color. We hear this with people with disabilities. We hear this with people who represent different diversities in the workplace. So I love this idea of pay transparency. I think it's really important. But where I am a bit alarmed is that as we look at all the trends coming forward, much of the stuff that I'm reading shows a decrease in importance around diversity, equity, and inclusion. And the reasons for this often, so you probably remember this, I don't know how many jobs I would see posted on LinkedIn and elsewhere for directors of diversity, equity, inclusion, big push in organizations to set up teams and committees and all kinds of stuff. But these organizations were kind of performing diversity, equity, and inclusion by creating these roles and didn't put kind of the money where their mouth was. Or there was maybe putting someone in a leadership position, but there was no sponsorship at the senior table. 
lack of strategy. It's like, well, what are we actually going to do? I don't know. Maybe we'll honor Martin Luther King Day or whatever. <laughs> like very facile and frankly insulting initiatives that come out of, and people who went into these roles, many of them are leaving because what they were promised, what they would be able to do. So I am a little bit concerned, but we talked about the pay part. There's been a lack of governing mechanisms. How do we make sure things are actually changing? So to me, pay transparency is a mechanism by which we know whether or not we're achieving greater equity in the workplace. There is just so much more to do to change people's thinking around what it means to treat everybody equally. I've said this before, but it's not an accident where we ended up with a lot of white men in positions of power. It's because we didn't let anybody else in or they didn't let anybody else in. So I'm heartened that the world is becoming more diversified, that we are hearing more voices, that there is a push. But really, we can't just let the people who are marginalized do this work. We all have to be doing this work. And I'm a little bit saddened and alarmed that this is less of a priority in many organizations right now. I'm hoping we can shift that tide in 2023. I actually think there's been a backlash. That's what I'm sensing. I would call it a backlash in this area. And I would go back to my first comment about change resistance. I think people are so overloaded and resistant to change that even bringing up that topic has people rolling their eyes. And I've seen that firsthand. Oh, God, I don't want to talk about gender anymore. I don't want to talk about anything to do with it. I don't want to hear people whining and complaining. And it also connects to our values. I think we're in a really tumultuous time and there is push for change, but there's also push to stay the same. <laughs> Absolutely. And that's one of the first things you learn as a change practitioner is anything you try to move, there's an equal force keeping it where it is. Okay. So you had one more, I think, before we wrap up. Yeah. It was around diversity, equity, and inclusion. But I will say this. You said this earlier, and I don't know how you said it, but what popped in my head was this idea of a sort of Me Too movement for the workplace. Like, we all know this stuff is not working, that we're being forced to endure. We all know that being forced back to the office isn't working. And there's some very courageous people who are saying, well, I'm just not going to stay. I'm going to go elsewhere. And organizations, I mean, some of this touches on recruitment, I think, as well, because if you can't keep the people who've already made a commitment to your organization by forcing them to come back to the workplace, you're not going to find anybody out there in the environment who's going to come to your organization if they're forced to be in the office three days a week. And this idea that we perpetuate that there are these unicorns, these perfect candidates just floating around in the ether they're to come and save us. They're going to bring their productivity and they're going to bring their enthusiasm. They are not out there. Those people who are really great employees who want to contribute are choosing to work for places that honor who they are as humans, that honor who they are as people with needs, with families and all of that. When I talk about putting the revolution into work revolution, I am heartened by the fact that people are planting a flag sort of for their own self-care and their own well-being. And I think those are going to be the employees who thrive because they are the hardest workers and they expect in return the respect to be treated as adults who can manage their own lives, whether they're sitting in an office chair that is really uncomfortable because nobody paid for an ergonomic assessment or they're at home on their beanbag, in their fluffy pajamas, helping this world work well because of what they're contributing. So I think that's my last point. Mic drop. Boom. <laughs> Lisa Schmidt, everybody. 
being yourself in this world, and you're right, and this is partly a generational thing as we get into, okay, well, now millennials are a majority of people in the workplace and then Gen Z coming behind them, there is this continued push. And being yourself in the world and staying true to that is stress-inducing. It's anxiety-inducing because it means not conforming. And it turns out that our society and our workplaces really do function on conformity. And so there's a non-conformist push that is certainly there. And I think we'll continue. I don't know that there's any way of putting that genie back in the box. Yeah. And poet E.E. E. Cummings said it best to be nobody but yourself in a world which is doing its best night and day to make you like everybody else means to fight the hardest battle, which any human being can fight and never stop fighting. So I am here to support anybody who wants to be that contrarian, to be that rebel you are changing the world of work for the better, and we are here to cheer you on. So we're looking forward to hearing again more of your stories that you share with us, either through the work we do or when you reach out to us at Work Revolution Podcast. Deborah, great start to the year. Thank you, Lisa. Looking forward to it. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Thanks for listening. If you like what you're hearing, please subscribe and give us a review. And follow the Work Revolution podcast on Instagram for more great content and updates about our work. In addition to two full episodes a month, we have a monthly Ask Us Anything, where we answer your questions about leadership, career maneuvering, and whatever workplace challenges you're facing. Submit your questions to our website at workrevolutionpodcast.com, where you'll find all our episodes as well as learn more about who we are. Thanks to Bernie at Blue Eye Music for our music theme and to the team at Poditize for production support. Until next time.